My name is Kent. I'm one of the pastors here, and I've been excited all week to get another chance to come before you and walk on this road marked with suffering, which sounds like kind of a weird thing to come and think about suffering. But we started on this journey last week with some very specific things in mind. We looked at Isaiah 53 last week, which was the passage about the suffering servant, and we read about this servant who would come who would be despised and rejected who would be tormented and who would walk this path of suffering and he would do it for us. And we needed it because we are like lost sheep. We have lost our way and we need someone to point the way. So the suffering servant does that. And we said we were going to pay attention to three specific things as we walk on this path. First of all, we were going to pay attention to the suffering of Jesus, try to tune into that. Secondly, we were going to pay attention to our own suffering, the things that are hard for us. And the last thing we said we were going to do is we were going to pay attention to the suffering of people around us. So we're going to lift our eyes off of ourselves and look at the world and recognize that there's other people who are already suffering. So that's the journey we're going to continue today. And now we're moving into the passion narrative. So we're going to spend the rest of our Lent season on Sunday mornings looking at the passion narrative. Now a lot of people look at the Gospels and they think that Really, the Gospels are just passion narratives with long introductions. About one-third of all the Gospels is about the last week of Christ's life, and that's what we want to start to focus on. To get us into that today, I want you to open your Bible and turn to Matthew chapter 20. So we're in the first Gospel, the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to start in chapter 20, verse 20. Matthew 20, 20. Matthew 20, starting with verse 20. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and, kneeling down, asked a favor of him. What is it you want? Jesus asked. And she said, Grant that one of those two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, You will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them all together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them? Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is God's word, and it's true, and we can rely upon it. Did you know that people generally have a notoriously bad time with accurate self-assessment? We don't know ourselves very well. We tend to overrate ourselves. I've got some examples to share with you. There was a survey of a million high school students, and in this survey, 
70% of them thought that they had above average leadership skills. Now, some of you are engineers or mathematicians. You know how that works, right? Only 2% of them rated themselves as below average as leaders. Okay, you know, that's not how it works, right? Okay. In the area of getting along with others, 60% of them rated themselves as being in the top 25% of them rated themselves as being in the top 1% of being able to get along with other people. Self-assessment. It's not just students. A survey of college professors revealed that 94% of the college professors rated themselves as above average in their ability to teach. Anybody here ever have a bad college professor? That's the 6%, I guess. In a survey of general, the general population of potential voters, 83% of them said that they would vote in the next election. And then a mere four weeks later, only 40% of them actually voted. So we have a tendency to overestimate. Some of the experiments they use to demonstrate this are actually freaky. Um, some scientists took some pictures of some subjects. They altered these photographs in various ways so that they had 11 different versions of every person. And then they gave the photographs to the individuals and they had to pick which photograph was the unaltered photograph, okay? Now, they intentionally altered half the photographs so that they would look more attractive and half of the photographs so they would look less attractive and only one was left the same. So... In study after study after study, the individuals had a difficult time picking which was the unaltered photograph of their own face. Guess which one they picked? They picked the one that was the most attractive every time. We have a terrible time assessing ourselves accurately. And I got a name for this. This is my own particular name. I call it the shotgun effect. Okay? Everybody here knows what is the best seat in the car if you're not the driver, right? The, the passenger seat next to the driver, right? That's shotgun. So we, that's why we call shotgun, because it's the next best seat, okay? I have three kids. Kelsey was the oldest, Travis in the middle, and then Shana was the youngest. In my household, there was no calling shotgun because Shana, the youngest, always got to sit in the shotgun position, I don't remember exactly how this started, but there was no point in arguing about it because if you tried to unseat her from the shotgun, she would make it miserable for everybody. We couldn't even rotate into the shotgun, okay? Now, I started to date Mary, and Shana decided that Mary had to sit in the back seat, and she would get the shotgun seat. That's how it worked in her mind. That's pecking order. That's not exactly how it worked out in reality, just so you know. Jesus once noted the shotgun effect at a dinner. You remember the story about Jesus at the dinner with people? And he was noticing that as people came in, they all wanted to get to the shotgun position, which would be on the right or the left of the host, right? And Jesus noted that when everybody came in, they all started to move toward the front of the table. And he actually gave them some advice, and he said, you know what, you would be better off, actually, if you would start at the far end of the table, away from the host. And then... The host might have to say, hey, you, way down there, you come up here and sit shotgun by me, rather than having come and sat by the host and then having to be unseated and go, well, here's a better guest than you. You've got to go sit down there. 
This is the shotgun effect. This is what happened in our passage in Matthew 20. James and John are calling shotgun actually through their mother, which I'm not sure if that's actually legal, if you can call shotgun for somebody else. But their mother comes and says to Jesus, hey, can my sons have the honored position? One of them on your right and one of them at your left. And Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking for. This is a big request you're asking. Because if you're going to sit at my right or my left, you're going to have to walk a road marked with suffering. You're going to, he doesn't use road in this passage. He uses the idea of cup. You're going to have to drink the cup of my suffering. If you want to follow Jesus, Jesus says, you've got to walk this road. There's no way around it. James and John don't really know what they're getting into, so they answer with, they probably, uh, inaccurate self-assessment. They're like, oh yeah, we can do that. We can handle that suffering, right? We can do it. We can drink the cup. We can bear the load. We can handle the suffering. Jesus said, well, you will walk this road. You will handle the suffering but you don't know what you're getting into. Which is kind of surprising because from the very beginning of his ministry, Jesus has been pretty clear about what it means to follow him. If you want to follow Jesus, he has used this kind of talk all along, that there's going to be suffering, there's going to be difficulties, there's going to be hardships, there's going to be pain. From the beginning of his ministry, he's talked about cross. Take up your cross and follow me, he says. This is not news to the disciples. They should have picked up on this right along. In fact, when Jesus starts to talk about his mission, as soon as he starts talking about his mission, he starts using this kind of language. He says, I have not come to be served. I have come to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. Serving is giving your life. That sounds like suffering. Jesus has been talking about this from the very beginning, and it seems to me that it intensifies as we get closer and closer to the cross. Now, this conversation about greatness that the disciples have in Matthew 20 actually is repeated in the Gospels about six or seven times. It keeps coming up, and it kind of, it's, a, it's a kind of an amazing thing. You know, They're following Jesus, they're watching Jesus do all these amazing things. He's healing, he's raising people from the dead, he's... Um, He's teaching profound truths as one with authority. And behind him, I have pictured this band of disciples and they're like elbowing each other and they're having these discussions. Which one of us is going to be his favorite, right? Which one's going to be the greatest? This happens many times. The, uh, the last time it happens is in Luke chapter 22. If you want to go and look at that a little bit later, you'll see here that the setup for this conversation in Luke 22 is absolutely incredible. Jesus has been predicting that his death is coming. He's actually done this three times. He said to them, this whole thing is going to end, this road is going to end with me being killed, with me dying, being sacrificed. He's told them that three times. Every time it comes up, they, oh no, it's not going to happen. They deny it. Jesus has been predicting that there's going to be trouble and they've been seeing this trouble come true because there's been a plot to kill him and this started almost from the beginning of his ministry that there was kind of a conspiracy of people they they're 
frustrated with Jesus and how he's talking and the things he's talking about. They make a plot to kill him. And that conspiracy seems to be heightening by the time we get to Luke 22. Now Jesus is saying, hey, somebody here at this table, some of my inner circle, they're actually going to betray me. This is really coming to, to fruition. It's going to happen. The disciples are also celebrating Passover. This is one of the last things they all did together with Jesus before he took the final road to Calvary. He is having Passover with them and he's changing the images of these symbols. Now he's saying, when you eat this bread, I want you to think about my body broken. And when you drink this cup, I want you to think about my blood shed. I just want you to hear this in in Luke 22. See if you can't pick up on this crosstalk, this suffering, this serving talk. It's, it's pretty obvious in here to me. When the hour had come, Jesus, this is Luke 22, verse 14. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until the kingdom of heaven comes. Are you getting the clues here? After taking the cup, he gave thanks and he said, Take this and divide it among you, for I tell you, I will not drink it again until the kingdom comes. And he took the bread and he gave thanks for it and he broke it and he gave that to the same, This is my body, broken for you. Do it in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This is the cup, is the new covenant of my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who's going to betray me is with me at the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to the one who betrays him. Jesus is making it crystal clear. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life in service to us. And he makes it clear to his disciples the entire time they're together, greatness is in serving, in in serving that maybe results in laying down your life, serving that results in walking a road marked with suffering. And right after they have this conversation in Luke 22, this is what it says next, the next sentence. And a dispute arose among the disciples as to which one was going to be the greatest. I find that unbelievable. Maybe not. I wonder if their world is not that different from ours. You know, we often think that greatness comes from doing great things, right? I mean, that's just our definition in our world. We don't think of greatness as being in sacrifice or suffering. This is what we put on our resumes. While still in nursery school, I organized the toddlers to campaign for recycled diapers. While in first grade, I represented my class at the school board showdown on whether to move to number to 2% milk. When I was in fourth grade, I invented the internet. When I was in eighth grade, I traveled deep into the Amazon jungle, found a savage tribe, learned their language, taught them how to play golf, and found fresh, sustainable water. I made it to the top by the time I was 25, made my fortune by the time I was 35, climbed Mount Everest, won a gold medal. That's greatness, right? When we do great things, that's greatness. Jesus offers a completely different definition. Greatness is to serve. 
to lay down your life, to think of others first, to walk the road marked with suffering, to drink the cup of suffering. These are the kinds of things that Jesus talks about as being great. They're actually the same characteristics as being a slave. And he interchanges this language, whether it's servant language or slave language. It's often the same language, just translated as a different word in our Bibles. Slave or servant. A slave has no identity outside of serving their master. That's what it means to be a slave. The only thing I do is I do what my master bids me to do. That's what a slave does. A slave has no identity that isn't tied to his ability to help his master succeed or flourish. That's what a slave does. A slave is there for the sake of his master. A slave is great when the one the slave serves is great. That's how it works. Jesus said he came not to be served, but to serve to give his life as a ransom for many, as a slave. And he'll die for the sake of this. And in his dying, he'll bring God's kingdom. He'll conquer sin and death. He'll set us free. He'll serve us. That's why he, what, that's why he chose to walk this road. Now, I don't know how that hits you, but every time I think about it, it hits me hard. What Jesus was willing to do, the path he was willing to walk for me, to set me free, to pay for my sins. And it makes me think of this phrase, downward mobility. Do you know what that is? Instead of aspiring to go up the pecking order, to aspire to go down the pecking order. Because here's how it worked for Jesus. King of kings, Lord of lords, slave servant downward mobility and it makes me wonder if we're not called to downward mobility if we're going to be following jesus on this path should we also find our way down the slope now this is not the normal way that we pitch jesus and it's not the normal way we pitch following jesus usually when we talk about following jesus it goes something like this we say hey come to jesus and have all of your needs met right Come to Jesus and find happiness. Come to Jesus and find peace. Come to Jesus and find uh, hope for the future. Conquer your worries, health and wealth, whatever it is we offer you. Come to Jesus and get all these things. Come to Jesus and get stuff. That's kind of the normal way for pitching Jesus to people. And this appeals to us, I think, in our culture of consumerism, right? Because we like to get stuff. So if we can come to Jesus and get something, all the better, right? This is sometimes called evangelism. It's like how we lure people in, like promise them something really good if they come to Jesus. It doesn't really seem to work very well if you say, come to Jesus and get suffering. It doesn't seem like a really good pitch, does it? I can remember years ago I went to a conference on church growth this is when church growth was big and seeker sensitivity and all that. And the, the speaker at this conference made our job very clear. He says the job of the church is this, to figure out where people itch and then scratch that itch. That's what we were told to do. That we were supposed to find out what they really want, 
What is their felt need? That was another way to talk about it. Find their felt need and then promise them that they'll get that need met. Jesus seems to be taking a completely different approach here. Anybody here feel a need to suffer? Feel a need to walk this road marked with pain? Anybody? And yet, this is what Jesus says. It seems like he's saying, come to me and your life could get worse. You'll have to drink the same cup that I drank. You'll have to bear the same burden that I bore. Come to Jesus if you want downward mobility. So I'm sure that this is not easy for the disciples to hear. They have been following along with Jesus, and it's been tough. And remember, these disciples gave up a lot, right? They gave up their fishing business. They gave up their families. For three years, they've been traveling alongside with him. And as they've been walking this road with Jesus, you can count on this. They've been weary. They've been worn out. They've been hungry. They've been tired. They've been mocked. They've been scoffed. They've been, it's been hard. It, it would be hard to follow Jesus. I'm sure those disciples found it very difficult. And so it would make, it's no big surprise, I don't think, that as they're starting to see this whole enterprise coming closer to a conclusion, that they might go, hey, Jesus, when you get into your kingdom, when it's fully come, shotgun, let me sit at your right or your left. There's got to be some reward out of this. They are not expecting Jesus to say, you know what's at the end of this pathway? A cross. That's what's at the end of the path, and you will suffer the cross. I'm guessing they're thinking they maybe don't need a cross. And this is where, you know, it starts to rub. So sometimes preachers get accused of meddling, and I figure since I'm walking on this pathway of Jesus towards suffering and all that, I can meddle a little bit today. So that's what I'm going to do right now, just fair warning. And if you're going to walk out, everyone will see you walk out today, so you've got to listen, I guess. Um, there is a term for people who consistently uh, self-assess themselves as being better than they are. You know what the term is for that? Self-righteousness. Self-righteousness, okay? And self-righteousness actually isn't uh, about myself. Self-righteousness is actually about you all. So when I assess myself as being good, what I'm doing is I'm actually comparing myself to you. And when I think about whether or not I'm good or bad, the question I usually ask is, am I better or worse than you? And if I'm self-righteous, my conclusion is, well, yeah, of course I'm better than all of you, <laughs> right? That's self-righteousness. And um, Christians are really susceptible to this because God gave a lot of rules. He gave a lot of behaviors that we could do, that we could follow, and many of us are good at following them. And as we become better and better at following all of God's rules, it's easy for us to become more and more self-righteous because I think I'm doing a better job than everybody else is doing, especially those people who are not sitting in the room here right now with us, right? Look at the world. How are they living? Well, we got to be better than them, right? Self-righteousness. We took a little survey on the app, and the, app, the question was simply, how bad are you? Did some of you see this question? I don't know if any of you answered it, but about 25% of the people who responded to the survey said they're better than most in the area of sin. They're not as bad as most. The rest of us realize, well, we're either about average or some of us admitted that we're worse than most, right? 
the ones who are thinking they're better than most have the greatest danger of being self-righteous. I think I'm better than most people. The person who's self-righteous has one problem. You know what it is? Self-righteousness is a sin. It's actually one of the most despicable sins. If you're reading in your scriptures and you're paying attention, self-righteousness comes up as often and maybe more often than most any other sin in the Bible. Self-righteousness is a sin. You know what a person who's self-righteous needs? The cross. That's what a person who's self-righteous needs. Just like every other sinner, that's what we need. Jesus says, oh yeah, you'll come to the cross if you follow me because you need it. Because I need it. That's why we walk this road. That's why it's so important for all of us to take this path and to take this journey every year toward Calvary. To remember that God sent his son to pay for our sins, including our self-righteousness. One of the best remedies I know to um, overestimating myself to inaccurate self-assessment and to self-righteousness, I've, I've got just a couple of suggestions. One thing that helps me with downward mobility is to recognize the path of suffering, to recognize how much Jesus suffered, to pay attention to my own suffering, to pay attention to the suffering of the people around me and recognize that God is there. That helps me. One of the, another thing that helps me with this is to spend time in prayer and fasting, to, to sacrifice stuff, to give up stuff, to print, spend time in confession, to spend time in repentance, admitting the places where I'm broken. And one other thing that helps me is when I can grow in my absolute sense of dependence on God, and that usually happens in prayer for me. When I'm praying, I go, you know what? I can't make this on my own. I need God, absolutely. That helps me with downward mobility. So there's a couple things for you to think about. If you have an issue with your own self-righteousness or your own unwillingness to walk the road marked with suffering, um, uh, an unwillingness to say embrace downward mobility, think about those things. So I was grateful for Diane mentioning the death of Billy Graham this morning. He was a hero for many of us. He, um, he served other people for 99 years. I mean, his whole life, if there was anyone who did an exemplary job and left an amazing legacy, I think he's one of those individuals. He built his legacy actually preaching the same sermon over and over and over again. I went back and listened to several of his sermons, and they're beautiful, but it's always the same sermon. And uh, the sermon is basically, you know, we're all like lost sheep, and we need to be found. And if you come to Jesus, he'll find you. That's his, his sermon. His sermon is, you know, repent. And come to Jesus, embrace the gift that he offers you, and that will make you great. Greatness comes from following Jesus. So I thought it would be appropriate. We want to give everybody a little space at the end of each of these suffering sermons to sit with it for a little while. So we're going to ask you to sit with it this morning and think about the suffering of Jesus, think about your own suffering, the suffering of the people around us, and do that while listening to this little clip just from a classic sermon of Billy Graham. So go ahead and play that little clip and let's think about what great you see happiness doesn't depend on abundance happiness depends on something else it depends on something deeper 
And the Bible says, Isaiah the prophet said, there is no peace, saith the Lord, to the wicked. I don't care how rich you get and how powerful you get, there will be no peace in your heart if you don't know God. Now that word wicked doesn't mean that you do wicked things. It means that you're just away from God. You'll be like the restless sea, the Bible says. Have you ever looked out at the sea? and watched how restless it is. It's coming and it's going. The Bible says that's the heart of the person who doesn't know Christ. That's the way his heart is, always restless. The Bible says, be not deceived. God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. But the Bible also says, blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. That word blessed means happy. If you have your sins forgiven, and your iniquities have been covered by the blood of Christ, then there's happiness, and there's joy, and there's peace. And God can forgive sin because of the cross. God has sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die on the cross, and he put all of your sins on him. He became the sin bearer. He became the scapegoat. He was the one that took the penalty for your sins. And because of that, God says, I love you, I can forgive you. There's hope, there's joy, there's purpose, there's meaning. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. I'm looking forward to that day when I'll see Christ face to face. Are you? Does he live in your heart now? Would you like that hope and would you like that peace and would you like that joy? Would you like to know that all your sins are forgiven? Would you like to know that you're going to heaven? You can tonight. On the authority of God's word, I can promise it to you tonight. You don't get eternal life when you die. You get it right here and now, tonight. So we always make this offer um, because we assume anytime we gather together, there's maybe people who don't know what it's like to follow Jesus and have never embraced that. And as he just said, it could be right now that you make that decision and begin this journey. And there is blessing that comes from this journey also. But I'd like to offer a prayer right now and ask you to join with me as we do that. Lord God, we come before you today and I give you thanks for your love for us. Thank you for sending your son Jesus to die for our sins. And God, we confess that we are sinners, that we're sinful people, that we have wandered like sheep and gone astray, but that you have put our sin and our wandering and our wickedness on your son, Jesus. And God, we trust that that was done on our account, on our behalf, and we embrace that and we give you thanks for that. And we ask that your Holy Spirit would be working in each one of us to help us more and more uh, follow you, to, to take up our cross and to um, walk this road marked with suffering and discover what uh, real greatness means in you and we will be careful to give you thanks for all that you're doing in us in jesus name amen so as we've been messing with our time together here one of the things we wanted to do was give you a chance to respond to what we do in the message right away by maybe serving the people around you and one way you could do that is by this little practice called passing the peace where i look at my neighbor and i say well the peace of christ could be with you and then my neighbor responds by saying, yeah, and also with you. Um, that's the classic way of doing it. A more contemporary way would be say, hey, good morning, glad to see you, that kind of thing. So what I want you to do right now is stand up and greet your neighbor and, and pass the peace of Christ. <laughs> 